Two weeks ago, we began a series on the book of Isaiah. In the first week, we gave an introduction. Who wrote it? When? What are the major themes, key verses, and so forth? And then last week, we looked at just chapter 1 and the key verses. And I told you that uh, since this is a very long book, we're going to be doing summaries of many chapters and just concentrating on certain key verses. Uh, and then certain places, we'll, like chapter 53, we'll do one whole study on just that chapter. A few days ago, I was waiting for something on TV, and they showed a contest somewhere in the world of the world-class stone skippers. You ever try that, skipping a stone across a lake? These were good. And I thought that's kind of like what we're doing with Isaiah. We're skipping the stones by concentrating on certain key verses and themes and then skipping over certain other things with just a very brief overview. Having said that, tonight we're going to skip going through chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. But next week, chapter 6, very great chapter. We'll slow down for that. Here's a brief summary of what's going on. God predicts, promises, and prophesies peace for Israel. Now that's an alliterative thing. Prediction, promise, prophecy, peace. But there's a lot in between there. There's rebuke, and of course this is a theme of all the prophets. God rebukes his people, kind of like spanking them, and then promises great peace and prosperity in the future. Now look at chapter 2, and I'm not going to read every verse, but it begins by talking about um, the latter days um, and the mountains of the Lord, and that's especially um, Mount Zion. And as I've said before, prophets often use symbolic language, and he uses symbolic language here, and I'll explain one example, but it's not what, what is called apocalyptic symbolism. We looked at that not long ago when we went through Zechariah. In the previous year, we went through Daniel and Revelation. Those have a lot of symbolics that are not, not to be taken literal. We're talking about the beast with horns. And Daniel explicitly says, well, this stands for Greece, that for Rome, and so forth. So there's symbolic language and apocalyptic symbolism. Lesson is, don't be um, too literal interpreting certain things. Otherwise, you're going to end up with some bizarre things. For example, here in verse 2 it says, the mountain of the Lord will be exalted above the other mountains. That's obviously symbolic. The mountain of the Lord he's talking about is Mount Zion, upon which Jerusalem is sitting. If it's going to be is it going to be somehow elevated higher than Mount Everest? If you took it literally, you'd have to say that. What it's saying is, God's people and the center of his worship is going to have a great day of exaltation one day. And if you want to go a step further, you can see that Mount Zion sometimes is in the Old Testament literal, but in the New Testament, it's mentioned as being symbolic of God's people. For example, Hebrews 12.22 says, We have not come to Mount Sinai with the thundering of God's law. We have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. He is explaining it symbolically. They weren't ever going to Mount Sinai. That was, what, 1,500 years earlier. And they haven't all climbed up Mount Zion. But he uses symbolic language, saying we're not just under the thunderbolts of God's law and condemnation. We have been saved because of what God did on Mount Zion, especially that little hill called Mount Calvary. 
Okay, verse 2. It says, Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house, that's Mount Zion, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There's a promise of many nations. You say, well, how can we square this with what else he says about his cho chosen nation, Israel? God chose the descendants of Abraham for a special reason. He gives them land, gives them the covenants, the Bible, the prophets, and from them will come the Messiah. But another great blessing is that through Israel would come the Messiah, and through the Messiah, many, many Gentiles. Well, the Jews generally forgot that by the time of Jesus. And they said, well, the Gentiles are dogs and pagans don't bother with them. Well, here is one of the Old Testament prophecies of many Gentiles coming to know the one true God. Now, if this was a Sunday school class, I would say, class, can anybody name Gentiles in the Old Testament that came to believe in the one true God and came under the wings of his protection? How about Rahab? How about Uriah the Hittite? How about Ruth the Moabitess? And if you go back even to the time of Abraham, there were three mysterious non-Jews because there weren't any Jews except Abraham who was a Hebrew. And so who else was there? Well, how about Melchizedek? How about Moses' uh, father-in-law Jethro? He wasn't a Jew, but he was right with God. How about Job? Now, it's kind of mysterious what kind of revelation and covenant did they have, but my point is these were just a few of the Gentiles in the Old Testament that came to know and believe in the one true God. But then gradually in the New Covenant, that would open the door to the floodgate of Gentiles all around the world. And that includes us. Now look at the next verse. And part of this you probably heard before. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Neither shall they lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I'm sure you've heard that, and now you know where it came from. Do you, does anybody want to tell me where this is carved in stone on a very famous or infamous building somewhere in the world? This is chiseled into one of the outside walls of the United Nations. Because they say, we want to bring peace. And somebody said, well, let's put this Bible verse on there. I'm not sure if the United Nations has really solved the problem of war and peace in its, what, 70 or 80 year history. But God says there will be a great time of peace one day. And they'll take these farming instruments. And, uh, and Joel, he says, he's going to take the farming instruments and make them into weapons of war. This is said the other way around in Joel. He says, Take your pruning hooks and beat them into swords. Now God's saying, take those swords and turn them back into plowshares, pruning hooks. That would be like, well, um, shovels and stuff like that. You won't need weapons anymore. Well, ask any Jew today, they're going to say they do need weapons. They've been attacked by Hamas, so this has not yet been fulfilled. But this is not just talking about peace for Israel, but worldwide peace. That hasn't happened yet. I read a report once that surveyed human history as far as they knew it and said 
that in all known human history, there have only been 47 years in which they were ne there was not a single war somewhere in the world. 47. Just think about it in the last 100 years. Hasn't been any year without war somewhere. Okay, let's skip down. Uh, verse 5, house of Jacob. Jacob, another symbolism for Israel. Come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. You remember we looked at a verse like that in Ephesians recently. Uh, you are light in the Lord, therefore walk as children of light. Light standing for God's truth, holiness, and glory. For, oh, he's saying come back and walk with God. Why? Because verse 6, you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because by the way, the you could be capitalized talking about God has forsaken his people temporarily because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. They are pleased with the children of foreigners. By the way, this isn't in my notes, but it says the Philistines. There are people today that say, well, we have Philistines today over there. They're the Palestinians. Philistine, Palestine. No, not quite, but you're close. As you, if you've been looking at the news, the Gaza Strip is that area in southwest Israel that borders on Israel. And that is where the Philistines lived. But the Palestinians are Arabs, not Philistines. If you know the book of Genesis, it's, they got a different ancestry. And so anybody that says, well, God said go and wipe out the Philistines, and that applies to the Palestinians, no, that's, it's a different people. But they were not in the covenantal line like uh, Jacob, it says here. But look closely at this verse. They are filled with eastern ways. Now, what does that mean? In the Bible, the east meant look toward Babylon, Assyria, these pagan nations. It would be even just slightly to the east. Moab, Ammon, and these other ones. You can't say go look to the west because what's to the west? Mediterranean Sea. And at this time... There really wasn't much going on in Greece or Rome. That would come later. And it's not talking about to the south down in Egypt. And the, the key exegetical indicator when it says they're filled with eastern ways is because they're soothsayers. In other words, they're into the occult. And that's what the other religions are. You know, there are different kinds of religions in the world. Some are closer to the truth than others, like Judaism. Believe it or not, even Islam is closer to the truth than, say, Hinduism. But it's the idea that in biblical history, there is always that influx of paganism coming in from the East. And they went along with it. You are filled with Eastern ways. How does that apply today? Have you noticed just in the last, I don't know, 10 or 20 years, if you're old enough to remember that far back, such a paradigm shift in what uh, the average American considers ideal. And there's been this mainly from the left coming in and saying basically this. Western culture bad, Eastern culture good. We don't want Western culture. We don't want to teach kids about Shakespeare. Certainly not biblical ethics. Let's look to the East. Not go West, young man. Go East. And so they have this fascination with Buddhism, Taoism. Not much with Shintoism. That was Hirohito's aggressive imperialism in World War II. It was a religion, but oh, they talk so much about Buddhism, they can't say enough good about it, and they can't say anything good about Western culture and Christianity. So you can see it even here that they didn't want God's ways. They wanted something from the East. By the way, um, 
uh, Israel has, is that sort of land bridge between the east and Europe and down in Africa and then from there over to the far west over in America. So it's, in a way, it's the Middle East, some call it the Near East, and it's the land bridge. And that's where God put his people on that special piece of land. Verse 7, their land is also full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Again, talking about Israel, as we said in our introduction to Isaiah, um, even though they were drifting into paganism, God still blessed them. It's kind of like in Hosea, where Hosea's wife is a symbol of Israel and committing gross and repeated immorality. And Hosea said, she didn't know that I was giving her the food, that box of groceries outside her doorstep every night. God still took care of Israel. And during Isaiah's ministry, they greatly prospered. It wasn't an empire like under Solomon, but economic prosperity, protection from their enemies. And, and it says here, wealthy, land full of silver and gold. And yet, they, verse 8, it's also full of idols. We'll get to that in a second. So they were in the process of apostatizing, and then God would say, I'm going to take away your silver and your gold, and I'm going to punish you. Now, again, we apply that to today. What would be the wealthiest nation in the world that has at least some Christian heritage? America, United States. Whether we were directly found to be a Christian nation, I don't think so in 1776, but you go back to the real founding fathers, the Pilgrim Fathers, they came over here and said, we want to set up a godly society. And for 200 and something years, we were Christian with a small c. In other words, it was part of our culture. Most people claim to be Christian. But we're in a post-Christian thing, but a period right now is becoming anti-Christian. But we, we are actually the wealthiest nation, not only in the world, but in history. Our standard of living. Compared to most of the world, we would be considered very wealthy individuals. People today go on welfare and they talk about they're very poor. But you, I read one uh, survey, I think it's from the government, saying that even the average person that's on relief and welfare and food stamps, they still generally own a car and a refrigerator and a computer and a cell phone. Go to certain parts of the world, the poor don't have anything like that. Most of them don't even have clean water within 10 miles. Modern medicine? No. That is poverty. So we're wealthy, but at the cost of throwing out the one that blessed our nation. And I remember saying this in a sermon once. Our motto on our uh, coins is, in God we trust. I think they misspelled it. For the average American, it's in gold we trust. They trust in the almighty dollar. But of course, you can't take it with you. And Christians should save and give very wisely. But we're no longer using biblical principles in our country, just like Israel. Verse 8, land is full of idols. Now, idol simply means the false gods of false religions. And we're seeing more of that in America, you know, even Christianity has been watered down in apostate churches. So, but notice it says here, um, they worship the, wor the work of their own hands. Their own fingers make this. And you find this rebuke especially later in Isaiah. And God mocks them. 
saying, you made it with your own hands and you're going to bow down and worship that? You made it in your own image. In fact, it says it both in Isaiah and several of the Psalms. You made them in your own image. They can't talk. They can't hear. They can't speak. They're like you that is spiritually blind, deaf, and dumb. People make their gods in their own image. We're made in the image of God and it's restored through Jesus Christ. So idolatry has it completely backwards. The land is full of idols and that's where God says, because of that, I will punish you. They bow down to it. Verse 9 now. Verse 10 says, Enter into the rock and in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. Call your attention to the phrase, the terror of the Lord. Terror is not just fear like a phobia. Terror is extreme fear. You hear of terrorists that bomb anybody and then nobody feels safe, like the Hamas attack on Israel. Terror. What God is threatening is one day he's going to let the Babylonians come in, ransack, rape, pillage, destroy so much. And they say, oh, and it can't happen to us. God says, you just wait. You're going to be terribly afraid. Terribly afraid. But God has acted in history like this in various ways with Israel and with other nations. That's why God allows war to get people's attention, but it usually doesn't drive them to him. But all these are prefiguring the great day of terror, the second coming of Jesus. You just read about that in Revelation 6, Revelation 19, 2 Thessalonians 1. It's going to be extreme ultimate terror for ungodly people. They'll run and try to hide in the, the caves and the holes of the ground. By the way, look at verse 18. The idols he shall utterly abolish. The land is filled with idolatry, but God's going to put an end to it. So I'm just going to skip over that because it, it says all these other things. The day of the Lord is host is coming, cedars of Lebanon, all the oaks of Bashan. So he starts, all these things are going to come crumbling down. God will step in and abolish this and he's going to have his day one day. It's called the day of the Lord. We skip over now to verse 22. Sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils. Of what account is he now? The old King James renders that cease from man. What is this sever yourself from, from man? He's repeating what is often said in the Bible. Don't put your trust in a mere human. A king. Such as Uzziah. Or even David. Best of men are just men at best. Or Solomon. He had his weaknesses. And yet humans always want to look to a great man. Has anybody ever heard of Thomas Carlyle, the great Scottish writer, 200 years ago? Okay. Did you ever read his book on heroes and hero worship? Interesting. He said that throughout history there have been these great men, and occasionally great women, that have risen to the top, and they, they, they're the big influences in, in history and culture, for good or for bad. And he talks about Cromwell and Frederick the Great and other ones like that. And there's something to be said for that. History books often talk about those great leaders that either lead people grossly astray, like Hitler, or that people follow them thinking, well, this is our hero. I remember when President Obama was president, 
people almost deified him. And there was a meeting out in, I think it was Las Vegas, of his supporters, a couple of thousand of them. And the lady was introducing him kind of went overboard and said, I introduced to you not only our president, but our Lord and Master, Barack Obama. And I heard that and I said, whoa, as bad as that was, the crowd stood up and cheered. It's almost like the rallies for Hitler at Nuremberg, you know, Sig Heil and this fanaticism. Now I can also say it wasn't just Obama, but I guess I'm treading where fools uh, tread. Some of the extreme supporters of Donald Trump. He could do no wrong. I'm a little afraid of that. When people will fight and have riots and shoot to support people that are very ungodly. How about people that follow the infallibility of the Pope? So you could apply this to anybody that they think is our hero. This is what we've been waiting for. Don't trust in man. There's only one man we can give absolute allegiance to, and that's the God-man, Jesus Christ, and no other person, even though they're good rulers, like David, who I mentioned earlier, the new Speaker of the House. Remember, the best of men are just men at best. By the way, when it says cease from trusting in man, that includes yourself. Okay, that's a brief overview of chapter 2. We're going to go a little faster on the next few chapters. Chapter 3, more threats of judgment against Judah. And as I've said, every time I preach on these threats of judgment, God does not issue idle threats. And yet we see that in ancient biblical days, they were saying, oh, no, Isaiah, Jeremiah, oh, stop that, Micah, yeah. We, God's not going to punish us. People still say that today, you, Tell them about death, judgment, sin, hell, judgment day. They say, my God wouldn't do that. If your God doesn't threaten judgment, he's not the one true God. God does not issue idle threats. Skip down now to verse 4. I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. That's part of God's judgment when immature people are risen to places of authority. I remember... 20-something years ago when Bill Clinton came in, they, an interviewer who was not exactly uh, ultra-conservative, kind of poked fun, he says, are there any adults in the White House? Look at all these people that are still in their 20s that are his closest advisors. George Stephanopoulos, for example. And they said, there should be men and women of experience and wisdom that does not come to youth. So it's a judgment when people that are inexperienced and literally children in the medieval uh, ages, there were boys that were made kings and bishops. By the way, there are exceptions to this general rule. Two or three generations after this, the boy King Josiah, one of the best kings in Israel, started off when he was very young. Or go back 500 years ago, King Edward VI, you know about him? In England, anybody know who he was? A boy king, very godly, and helped bring in the Puritans and the English Reformation. And he died when he was just a young man, but he started off as a boy. He had good godly advisors, so that's an exception to the general rule. But it says here, children will rule over you. I remember Jonathan Edwards commenting about this. He says, something's wrong in a family when the children become the head and the head become like the children at the whim, but... 
This sometimes happens. Uh, they're trying to lower the minimum age for voting. There was a movie when I was young that said, well, give the vote to those that are 16. By the end of the movie, they were saying 14. And then I think they were saying, how about 12? You're going to give the vote to 12-year-olds? How about 8-year-olds? Or how about just say anybody? Can you imagine in a family if the parents say, we'll let the kids eat anything they want to. They can have ice cream at every meal. And so it's saying children are ruling over them. They don't have the wisdom. So much of the modern American culture is aimed at the young pre-adults, even pre-adolescents. Just look at TV and the ads and music and all that. And of course, we were all young once, and when you're that age, you think you know it all. And anybody older than you, let's say 21 and up, oh, the old fogies that don't know what they're talking about. Uh, there's that two mottos when I was young, don't trust anybody over 30. And then another song said, I hope I die before I get old. But generally we outgrow that and say, I wasn't as wise as I thought I was at that time. So it's a curse on a nation when they turn to the children and their supposed wisdom. Verse 9. The look on their countenance witnesses against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Now you know where I'm going with that. He's already compared Israel to Sodom back in chapter 1 and said that God spared you. He didn't spare the Sodomites. But you can see the application for today. Just do a study in the Bible how it describes Sodom and Gomorrah and you're looking at a prescription and a diagnosis of the United States. Gross immorality homosexuality, LGBTQ, and 20 other letters after that. And it says here that they do not hide it. At one time, it was in the closet. It was illegal in all 50 states. Today, it's not only out of the closet, but they're having parades. Have you ever thought about that? Parades celebrating some of the worst, grossest immoralities. And they're pri proud about it. It's pride. You oppose it. You better look out. You'll be canceled. Maybe even arrested for a hate crime. So this would apply it. Apply to America today. Not to mention sodomites were into idolatry, human sacrifice. Oh, you don't sacrifice babies. Have you never heard of abortion? We're no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. And God might well judge America. Verses 10 and 11. Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked. Now notice the contrast. And this is a principle we find often in the Bible. Blessings to the righteous, woe to the wicked. It's like in Luke 6 and Matthew 23. Blessed are these, blessed are those, the um, Beatitudes. Blessed are those that mourn and so forth. And it says, yeah, but woe to you that are the opposite. That's God's principle. But you might say, well, it says blessing to the righteous. Doesn't it say in Romans 3.10, there's nobody righteous, not even one. How then do we come under God's blessings? Justification. He accounts us righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. And then he develops righteousness in us through the process of sanctification. So all of that puts us in the place of blessing. But if we're outside of that, uh, umbrella, we're subject to God's woe to the wicked and the punishments. Verse 12, as for my people, children are their oppressors. 
And women rule over them. Now that's been understood and misunderstood. Women rule over them. Biblical principle is the headship of the husband. And in the local church, it's the authority of the elders and it's limited to men. What about in society? This looks like it's a condemnation that none of the men had enough fortitude and wisdom to be wise rulers, so women stepped in. And we find an example of that in the Old Testament with um, King Barak. Now that's Barak, not Barak. And he wasn't that wise of a leader, and so God raised up Deborah. That's an exception to the general rule, and we've seen that in history. I remember hearing people preach on this when I lived in Britain 40 years ago, and they said, is this talking about Great Britain where we have a queen and we have Margaret Thatcher as prime minister? Is this a judgment upon Great Britain? And people were saying yes, some people said no. But others said, well, just look at their character and you find that the queen and Margaret Thatcher by and large took more biblical stands than some of the wimpy men over down the road in Parliament and even in the Conservative Party. And they said, well, she's kind of like a modern-day Deborah. But that would be an exception to the general rule. It says here, oh, my people. You know, I'm going to preach sometime on the O's of the Bible. Oh, my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. They're leading you down the primrose path to judgment. Now, 13 to 15, basically God is saying, you don't have good, wise, righteous rulers. I'm going to step in and be your judge. And that's what we need. God, in his word and his principles, to step in. God will judge. And he's promising one day after he punishes enemies, he's going to rule. And the true justice will be not by men, not by women, not by children, but by God himself. You say, well, when and how? Well, this could be a prophecy of the kingdom of God that Jesus brought in. He is the God-man, the only true judge, and will culminate in the success of his kingdom at the second coming. Now, verse 16 and following, I won't go into all the details here, but now he rebukes, quote, the daughters of Zion. They're haughty. In other words, they're flagrant and they're, they're proud. They walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes and so forth. And it talks about how they are proud of their beauty and unfortunately becoming very immodest. The Bible puts a high priority on the women in society and it's a bad sign when they become immodest. And I think that very few young ladies or even middle-aged ones know the meaning of the word modesty anymore. Certainly not in the United States. Isn't it also an ironic rebuke that certain pagan nations do appreciate that, such as Muslims, where it's a shame for women to not even have a head covering. I'm not saying we have to have head coverings, but at least they have some value on modesty. What about in the United States? So God said, I'm going to step in and put an end to that. That's verses 18 to 25. If you want to know what the Bible says about female modesty, 1 Peter 3 1 Timothy 2, and we've got one handout in the lobby. By the way, I want to throw this in. I, I saw an ironic twist on this that was like a sign of the time. Years ago, I was having a Bible study with a preacher friend of mine. I was sitting in his office, and he had his Bible open. He says, Kurt, what do you make of this verse? And I said, well, I don't have my Bible. So I pulled an old King James Version off of the shelf, and I turned to 
1 Timothy 2, where it said, you know, I would that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. And I said, uh, David, we got a misprint here. He says, what does it say? It says, I would that they adorn themselves in modern apparel. And we both had a good laugh. But wait a second, isn't that what people are doing today? Instead of modesty, it's modern and it's very immodest. Okay, that brings us now to chapter 4. Again, we're skipping over this like that stone over the pond. More predictions of dire and unusual divine interventions for good or for bad. And that's, remember the Bible says God's ways are not our ways. They were being prosperous, but God says, but it's mixed with idolatry. You don't see it from my point of view. So God would intervene when they didn't expect it and show mercy when they didn't deserve it. Verse 1, it says, In that day seven women will take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. It's not polygamy with one man with seven wives, but after this terrible warfare that God has allowed with the Babylonians coming in, there'd be far more women than men. Seven women to every one man, and that often happens in war. You do know that in war, far more men than women die because men have the uniform and the guns, and so more of them die. By the way, I remember reading a report about this. Um, I forgot who put it together, but some statistician and said, all around the world, if you look at birth rates, you find that there's just a little bit more men than women that are born. And he said, maybe that's nature's way of compensating for men that die in war. Interesting that he said, I wish he had said, maybe this is God's way. But it talks about this day far off in the future. Look at verse 2. Now, remember in our first lesson I said, there are many messianic prophecies in Isaiah. Chapter 6, virgin birth. Chapter 9, the government upon the Messiah's shoulder. Chapter 53 and other ones. Here's one that's often overlooked. Verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord. The branch is mentioned in Jeremiah. We saw it also in Zechariah. Who's this branch? That's the Messiah. He shall be beautiful and glorious. That's Jesus. He is altogether lovely. Through the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. The branch. Do a study on that. The branch, as it says elsewhere, that springs up out of the root of David. That's mentioned later in Isaiah. The line of David was like a family tree that's cut down, but out of that stump it'll begin to grow again and have not only a tree with many branches, but one branch in particular, the Messiah. Kind of mysterious, but that's what it means, the branch. There's also something else there. The Hebrew word for branch is alluded to in that mysterious Christmas episode in Matthew chapter 2. Where at the end of the chapter, uh, Joseph and Mary take Jesus back to Nazareth. And it says, fulfilling the prophecy, he shall be called a Nazarene. Jesus was not a Nazarite because those were people that took special vows to not cut their hair and can't drink wine and so forth. Jesus was not a Nazarite. How then is he a Nazarene and what prophecy is he fulfilling? The prophecies of the branch, because the Hebrew word for branch is basically Nazari. He would be the Nazarene. He is the branch. And that was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you witness to a Jewish friend, you might say, who's the branch? In Isaiah, Jeremiah, 
And those are, I have the foggiest idea. Who is it? He said, well, it's the Messiah. Descended from David, lived in Nazareth, and say he's the Messiah Jesus. Here's another great promise. Skip down to verse 5. Very short chapter. Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies. You know what he's talking about next? A cloud and smoke by day, the shining of the flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there shall be a covering. What's this about a cloud with fire and light? Come on, you know the Bible. The pillar that guided Israel in the wilderness and it was like this, this pillar of cloud and it would give light at night to the Jews and it would be like fire in the daytime and it would be darkness to the Egyptians and it was the glory cloud. The, the Shekinah light of God's glory would shine. Here God is saying it's not just, and by the way, that had pretty much disappeared um, sometime between the latter prophets and the time of Jesus. But you read the book of Ezekiel, it's coming back. Um, think about this, just a few weeks. Uh, what was that star that led the wise men? It was the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah that led to baby Jesus. So here's the glory cloud, not just in the wilderness, not just in the Holy of Holies when they did the sacrifices, right? But it says this wonderful day that God promises, it'll, it'll be uh, all over the place, all over their houses. God's going to reveal his glory in a great way in the future. Okay, lastly, we skip over chapter 5. This is an interesting chapter, and I mentioned it briefly this morning. It says, Now let me sing a song to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. So this is a song by God about Israel. And God uses symbolic language to talk about his people. Remember, Jesus alluded to Israel as, as a certain tree. It did not bear fruit, and therefore it was cursed, and it would later have fruit. There's a probable allusion to this in some of the parables, like the parable of the sower, or Matthew 21, a parable of a certain field. In any case, is a symbolic song. I wonder if Isaiah actually sang this. Perhaps he did. So the theme of this is that God had blessed Israel so much more than any other nation. And so it says, I've done this, I've done this, what more could I have done for my garden? Now we're going to look at those verses, but keep in mind the biblical principle, him to whom much is given, much shall be required. That's the theme of this song. Israel, I gave you more than I did to the other nations, you've misused it, you're going to be punished for misusing this. Can we apply that to America? Look how much God has blessed us. Not just with prosperity, health, and uh, financial prosperity, but a Christian heritage. So much more than most parts of the world. And what have we done with it? There are many other blessings, by the way, on all mankind. So this principle applied to them in the realm of common grace. God had given special things to Israel, but that didn't mean he didn't give the other one. Look it up and let's see, that's... Acts 14, 17, and other places where God has showered common grace over all the world. And so that would apply. It's like he says, Israel, what more could I have done? Look at all the blessings. Hey, other nations, I've given you health, prosperity, happiness, music, art, friends, good food. And this is how you repay me. What more do you want? You ingrates. Oop, that's us. 
So verses 8 to 23 kind of jumps into this song and it goes from being a happy song to a dirge. Look at this series of woes, verses 8 to 23. Like in Luke 6, woe to you this, woe to that. Seven times in Matthew 23 and three times in Revelation. Woe to you, woe to you. What does that mean? It means God's threat of punishment. You're under judgment. Woe to you. Not blessed to you, but woe to you. Remember back in Deuteronomy when they were still in the wilderness, the Jews were told, go to these two mountains with a valley between and put some Jews up here, Jews over there, and they'll recite out the blessings and the curses or the woes. Which are you going to choose? God said, I set before you life and death. Therefore, choose life. Choose the blessings. But in time, they didn't, and they're getting what they deserve. Verses 8 to 10, again, there's the wealth of Israel, but it would become desolate. Verses 11 to 17, another woe. Their alcohol, I remember I preached on that a few weeks ago, be not drunk with wine, and they're partying. They think God's not going to judge us. Hey, let's have a party. They're ignoring God, and they're basically worshiping the bottle. By the way, let me explain that interesting word in verse 14. Therefore, Sheol. What's, what's that? Sometimes, it's a Hebrew word, sometimes translated as hell, sometimes as death, sometimes as the grave. It basically means the afterlife. And in certain contexts, that's talking about hell, Hades, because in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, they usually use Hades as a translation for Sheol. But in sometimes it just refers to the grave, which is, as it were, the door into the afterlife. But then David said something that's quoted in Acts chapter 2 that applies it in another area of the afterlife because David said, you will not leave your anointed one in Sheol. And that's quoted in Acts chapter 2 applied to Jesus saying God didn't leave him in Hades. He was not in the fires of Hades. He was simply in the afterlife temporarily, not suffering, and then he rose up again. So he was in Sheol in that capacity, the afterlife. He wasn't on earth. He had died. So that's basically a summary of Sheol. In these verses, God says, I'm going to take them down. They're so wealthy now, they're thinking, not us. Doesn't that sound like America? Oh, not us. Yes, you. The bigger they come, the harder they fall. And God will have to bring down everything else so that one day he's last man standing. He will be exalted around the world. Okay, now look at verses 18 and 19 where God does not spare the whip. Another woe. Woe to those that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as with a cart rope that say, let him, God, make speed and hasten his work that we may see and let the counsel of the Holy... They're hypocritical in this. Just like Jesus pronounced woes seven times to the hypocritical religious leaders of Matthew 23. Now, I thought about preaching a whole lesson on verse 20. Woe to those that call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. They put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They've got it all backwards. They've got it upside down. This is what happens in a post-godly society like in Israel or in a post-Christian America. Ethics go completely backwards. One example... We used to have a high value on human life. Not now. 
Abortion, euthanasia, infanticide. Murderers are punished much less than they deserve. You know, there's still between 15 and 20,000 murders, not counting abortion. Very few of them are given the death penalty because those that are uh, opposing the death penalty are saying, we, we believe in the value of human life. You don't. If you did, you would execute the murderers. That would include the abortion murderers. But they say, oh, no, no. That's health care. Health care, they're describing abortion as health care? They've got everything backwards. As Jonathan Edwards said, they're blind as a mole in the ground. Woe to those that are calling evil good, and they're calling good evil. Um, cancel culture, we've been canceled in universities, media, government, cancel you. Used to be, well, just tolerate us. Now they're not tolerating us. Why? Because what God calls good, they call evil, and what God calls evil, they call good. There was an old saying in England 150 years ago, evil be thou my good. Now back then it was blatant amongst underground Satanists that would say, let's break all ten commandments this weekend. That's come out of that closet. Evil be thou my good. And I'm not just talking about the rise of Satanism, but the complete blind reversal of ethics, of what, right, what is right and wrong. You'd think that there are some things that are sacred. They're saying, no, we won't even go that far. They will one day. And it's already, I think, past the point of reclamation. We could also do a whole lesson on verse 21. Woe to those that are wise in their own eyes, prudent in their own sight. In their own sight, not as God sees it. Fast forward to Romans 1. Um, thinking themselves wise, they became fools. They're blind. They have false wisdom. And you know what the word for false human wisdom is? Philosophy. I studied a little bit of it in college. And I became a Christian. I said, but the Bible condemns philosophy. Colossians 2.8. And unfortunately, some Christians are trying to bring in philosophy. A lot of that started with Thomas Aquinas. It's foolishness. For example, the hypocrisy of this reversed um, ethical standards, they don't even see their own hypocrisy. Let me give you an example that I almost want to laugh about it. Do you know that there are leftists in government, education, media, and so forth that say the State Department should never issue passports to foreign missionaries? They really do want to stop that. Why? Because they say missionary activity is, quote, cultural genocide. They say these cultures that are not Christian, never have been, they could be in Africa, Asia, whatever, and they have their own religion. If you try to convert them, that's genocide. That's part of their culture. That's wrong. That's wrong. I want to laugh and say, you're the cultural genocidists. You came into America that had a Christian heritage, and you are, as it were, anti-Christian missionaries wanting to tear that out of our cultural heritage. Don't you see you're under your own condemnation? Do you see the point that I'm making? They just don't see it. They're blind. And it's not just blind, but evil. Verses 22 and 23, I alluded to this two weeks ago, preaching about use and misuse of alcohol. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine, 
People that show off how much I can drink him under the table, they say. Mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. That would apply to bartenders, for example. Mighty at drinking wine. Um, years ago, an uh, uh, older couple that I knew when I was still in my 20s invited me to a wine tasting party. I don't know if you, you all have probably heard of those. Hope none of you all have ever been to it. It's not the same thing as a bar where they say, what do you want, bourbon, scotch, what do you want? Wine tasting, they bring out these expensive wines, and they put them out on a table, and they, you're given like a card to score them with, and at the end, you know, you, but what they do in this extremely decadent, where you don't drink the wine, you slosh it around in your mouth, and you carry it around in your little metal bucket, and you spit it there, and then you go to the next one, and you spit it there, and they think, oh, this is ultra-chic culture. It's decadent. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. And of course, some bottles of wine are extremely expensive. Hundreds of dollars. So God rebukes us. says, they justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. So in addition to all these other things, they've got true justice upside down, inside and out, backwards. They're justifying the wicked because they're taking bribes. There are different kinds of bribes, by the way, legal and illegal, not just the judge that has been given, you know, $1,000 in unmarked bills, you know, in a brown paper bag, but a lot of lobbyists, they're basically bribing certain congressmen saying, you know, if you vote our way, we'll give you a lot of money and that'll get you reelected. If you don't, well, that's a form of legal bribery, in my opinion. They take away justice. So the guilty often go free and the innocent are often punished. Need to go through this very quickly. So God therefore warns them of fire. Verse 24, the fire devours the stubble and fire is going to punish you. And God allowed that with the invasion of the Babylonians. Remember they burnt down Jerusalem and killed many people. And so God's threatening judgment in the rest of the chapter here. And he's, uh, like so many of the other prophets before the exile, he's saying, judgment is coming. I let the Assyrians come into the north. I'm going to let the Babylonians come into the south. You're under the sword of God's justice. You better repent. The threat of invasion, but they ignored it. In my youth, there was the threat of invasion during the Cold War. Some of you remember, you know... <laughs> The threat of nuclear warfare with the Russians and then later with the Chinese. The threat of invasion. Uh, since 1948, Israel has lived under the threat of invasion that they're experiencing now with Hamas and Hezbollah. I conclude with this observation and application. God threatened his people with his invasion of judgment and warns them. Mankind should fear God's threats of invasion upon humankind at the second coming. And he means business. Most Israelites did not hear the warning, therefore they were judged. Most mankind will not heed the threat of God's judgment either. But some will. Let's pray. Father, we've looked at these four chapters. Put into our hearts these principles. Help us to heed your warnings and also to believe your promises. We submit ourselves, our families, our church, and we pray for our nation.
in Jesus' name. Amen.